welcome to the Sterling Foursquare Church Podcast. Our mission is to offer hope for the broken, lives that are thriving, the equipping of believers, and the launching of leaders. More info can be found at sterlingfoursquare.com. Thank you for joining us today. This morning, we're going to be starting a new sermon series, and our series is called Back to Life. Back to Life. And we're going to be spending the next series of weeks uh, in this Uh, moving towards Easter, which is coming up fast, uh, where we get to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as we begin that new series today, we're going to be focusing in the coming weeks on resurrection narratives in the gospel. Resurrection narratives in the gospel. And you may be wondering, okay, so what, Pastor, what is that? Uh, you know, we've got Easter coming up. We're going to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But did you know that in the Bible that there were other people that were raised from the dead as well? number of stories in the Old Testament, but particularly in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, on several occasions, Jesus spoke and somebody was raised from the dead. And not just in a spiritual sense, not just a dead in sin and alive in Christ sense, not just in a place where they had a diminished uh, hopelessness in their life and now they had hope and they had kind of a restoration to community. All of those things are appropriate, but people who were literally physically dead, where Jesus interrupted what was taking place and they were literally and physically restored to new life. And we're going to be looking at those resurrection narratives because they foreshadow Jesus' own resurrection. And what you see is you see him demonstrate God's ability to do that, but then he does it for himself, and that's what makes it unique. In all the other places in Scripture, when you see somebody who was raised from the dead, God used a person, right? In the Old Testament, he would often use a prophet. In the New Testament, in the Gospels, he uses Jesus, and then there are times in the church where that was taking place when he was just using ordinary people. But the uniqueness of Jesus' resurrection is that he resurrected himself, and we're going to be moving towards that celebration. And so each of these resurrection narratives that we're going to look at through the coming weeks is going to be something that foreshadow the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and they demonstrate not only God's ability, but his willingness to bring life out of death. And they're indicators that our hope in Jesus is not in vain. And so it sets out our frame of expectation of what God can do in our life and how he can use us. And if he can do that with a literal physical death, then certainly he can do that with the other areas of death and diminishment in my life. He can bring life out of those ashes as well. And in any and every area of life that has been touched or affected by sin and death, Jesus, in his person and work, offers you and I new life in its stead. So in our physical bodies, he brings new life. In our weary hearts, he brings new life. In our troubled minds, he brings new life. Because when Jesus touches something, it comes alive. His touch brings new life. Uh, Several weeks ago, um, me and my kids were preparing for their 4-H project. So my kids got involved in 4-H a number of years ago, that's something that dad does uh, with them. So it's one of the things that it's just kind of me and the kids uh, at the heart of that. 
Um, and so we uh, have kind of developed into a, a little 4-H family. Our youngest is now in 4-H as well, so I've got all three kids in it. And we are poultry people. Uh, that means that the way that we participate in 4-H is we do poultry, we do chickens and ducks, and that's kind of the, the, the little uh, niche that we found for ourselves. And, and we're, we're pretty good at it. We're pretty uh, happy uh, to be a part of that. I've already heard all of the jokes, so I know that as somebody who cares for chickens, that I'm technically a chicken tender. You can hold all those memes to yourself. I've heard it already, and I spoiled the joke for you right now. So we, we've heard all of that, but over the years, we, we, we've learned a few things, and um, at times, we've kind of gotten a few chicks here and there, and, and the last couple of years, we've ordered um, from specific hatcheries, and we're, we're trying to up our game a little bit, right? So we're, we're going direct. Um, but one of the things that we've kind of learned the hard way is just kind of the, the difficulty of uh, caring for animals and just kind of the, um, um, the delicacy of life, let's put it that way, uh, that kind of comes with that. And this year we were preparing for our chicks to arrive and we were making preparations at the home, but we were also watching the weather because that actually impacts what's taken place. And, and we've had times where cold snaps have come through and that has had an adverse effect on the vibrancy and the vitality on what was delivered. And as we were looking for our chicks to arrive this year, we were watching the weather with some measure of trepidation because it didn't look good. So our chicks were being uh, shipped uh, right after they were hatched, and they were coming through the, that last cold snap that we had. Now, not like San Francisco 45, ooh, it's breezy cold, like zero degrees northeast plains, the wind is whipping, and you've never been as cold as you are that day, that type of cold. Do you guys remember that? I know that you're trying to forget it. I've seen a few people in shorts here this morning trying to will summer upon us, but it looks like it's supposed to snow tomorrow. Again, as well, you live in Colorado, that's what you get. But we were watching the weather, and we were paying attention to what was going on, and our, our chicks were being shipped in the middle of that storm. And we've had some hardships based on that before, and so we were making some preparation. We were anticipating the delivery. We've got people at the post office that text us as soon as things arrive, and boom, we're down there. We're not waiting for home delivery. We're going and making the pickup ourselves. And so in the middle of that storm, after a kind of a little bit of a delay in, uh, in the travel, uh, we got the text, and I grabbed uh, my son, and we went down to the post office, and we received our box, and there was uh, 21 chicks is what we had ordered in, in, in this group, and 21 chicks uh, in a box is a, a noisy, active, vibrant box. That's not what was handed to us. Yeah, you guys, some of you are connecting the dots. Some of you aren't poultry people, and you're like, what's going to happen next? I'll get you there. And so immediately, we knew that there were some potential problems here, and so we got in the truck. We got home as quickly as possible, and my daughter and um, oldest of my boys was with me, and, and we opened the box, and, the, and there was no movement. There was no life. There was, there, it was, it was uh, disappointing. And as we were reflecting on, on that box, as we were reflecting on, on the delivery, we could see at, at times one try to open its mouth and close it, very laborious. You would see a little heavy breath. And immediately we went to work. 
immediately we went to work because we had already prepared for this place and we had already anticipated some of these things. And so one by one, we were taking them out and we were placing them under the heat lamp and we were massaging them and we were trying to position them in a way that we knew would kind of uh, uh, give them the best chance for vitality and vibrancy to return to them. And over a series of hours, we were able to revive 11 of the 21. Uh, when we got one to just kind of move, I thought, God, that's a, an incredible amount of grace, and I would have settled for that. But over and over and over, we were able to, with our care and with our attention, begin to, to steward life back into what was, for all intents and purposes, just a box of death. And I was reminded this week, as we were going to begin this series, I was reminded of that story, and I was reminded of those hours downstairs with my kids, doing just what we knew to do to have the best chance. And I felt like the Lord spoke to me, and He said, I do that to you. I do that to you. That the Lord's design for you and I is to take us in those moments where there's, there's, there's no life left. Like there's no life left in that hope or that dream. There's no life left in that relationship. There's no life left in that desire for freedom, but you still seem to be bound in addiction. That there's no life left in dot, dot, dot. And he says, you put yourself in my hands and I will bring life into it. Each of us have areas of, of neediness in our lives. Each of us have been touched at different points by sickness and despair, depression, anxiety, violence, injustice, arrogance, self-absorption, and so much more. There are so many broken things in this world that have left its, its fingerprints on us, that there's this sense of decay but in any and every one of those areas, Jesus would say, I can bring new life. I can bring new life. And in fact, when he began his ministry and he announced the kingdom of heaven is at hand or the kingdom of God is near, it was accompanied by the dramatic demonstration of the power of God to bring about the great reversal of life's circumstance and the things that had brought brokenness to people. Each one of us need a touch of Jesus to produce new life in us, both to revive us from our dead uh, soul and spirit to a place where we're alive in Christ in the idea of salvation, but in each and every area of our life that is in need of his touch, that his fruitful and vibrant, abundant life would be on display. And so we're going to spend our time over the next several weeks looking at how Jesus does that and how the resurrection narratives gives us hope of that, not just this idea, if he can bring a dead body to life, then certainly he can bring hope to other areas of brokenness, diminishment, the stench of death and the ashes of trauma. He, he can bring life out of those as well. If you've got your Bible, I want to invite you to get those out. Lord, we ask that you would prepare our hearts to receive from you today. Lord, we know that you share a parable of the word being planted and the enemy coming and trying to rob it as a seed that doesn't have time to get into the soil. And so, Lord, give us soft hearts today to receive the seed of your word. Lord, protect us from uh, the ploys of the enemy that would look to rob us of your goodness, that would look to sow seeds of, of doubt or despair 
Lord, tend, tend to us as the great gardener. Give us soft hearts to receive your word. Give us courageous hearts to respond in faith. And Lord, give us a willingness to walk it out in obedience this week in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, rather than jumping into one of the resurrection narratives, we're going to frame out some reminders for us as we go through it. And so in the, in the coming weeks, we're going to actually look at stories in the life and ministry of Jesus where he interrupted a death and brought about an actual new physical life. But we're going to frame out why it's important for us to see those in the narratives and the expectation that we should have of what he would do in our lives uh, today, what he would do uh, in us and around us as a result of that. And so we're going to start in John chapter 5. And in the book of John, we've talked about this a few different occasions, but John uses some primary metaphors to talk about what it means to, to be restored or to be uh, recovered um, or to be reconciled to God. And his kind of primary metaphors that John uses most of the time has to do with light and darkness and life and death. And in fact, in the book of John, the idea of life or new life or life everlasting or eternal life over and over and over and over again is how he draws upon what it means to be connected in right relationship with our Heavenly Father again, what it means to respond to the invitation of Jesus to receive salvation. He constantly draws on this metaphor of life and death in both a, a concept and in an actual practical implications for our lives. And in John chapter 5, we're not going to be able to go through the whole chapter this morning, but I would encourage you to read it uh, on your own maybe this week in your devotion or in your time of study. John chapter 5 opens with a dramatic healing, a dramatic healing. It's not one of the resurrection narratives. It's not a, a death to life type of a story in the whole uh, part of a physical body, but it opens with a dramatic healing. There's a man who has been lame. He is unable to walk, and Jesus comes and engages in with, a, uh, in, with him in a conversation. And Jesus comes and says, hey, uh, do you want to get healed? Which is kind of an interesting question. And the man offers an excuse for why he hasn't been healed. And if you read the narrative for yourself, he's in a specific place uh, in Jerusalem, a place that was known to have dramatic moves of God. And he was by a pool that he was waiting that if, if the water was stirred, the perspective was the first person to get in was going to receive a miracle. Uh, but he was never the first one in because guess what? It's hard to be the first one to run and jump in the pool when your legs don't work. And so he was constantly there trying to anticipate this miracle that was never able to come because he couldn't in his own strength get himself there. And so Jesus says, hey, do you want to be healed? And uh, he's like, um, I'm trying the best I can, but it's not working. And the interesting thing is he doesn't ask Jesus to do anything. He doesn't say, could you heal me? He doesn't ask for his advice. He doesn't actually even know who Jesus is or recognize him really afterwards. Jesus, says, Jesus just says, hey, do you want... You want your circumstance changed? You want new life in those legs? You want to be healed? Yeah, but here's the reason why I can't. And then Jesus' response to that excuse was this. Get up and walk. And the narrative just describes a man standing up and walking. He doesn't argue. He doesn't say, yeah, right. He, he literally, he responds in faith to that. But he gets up and he walks 
And there's this dramatic healing that opens John chapter 5. And immediately what happens is people are unhappy with Jesus, particularly the religious leaders, because this happened on the Sabbath. So in their perspective, this was a day where you weren't supposed to quote-unquote work, and Jesus was working, and so they're frustrated at that. Now I want you to imagine how hard your heart has to be to see a healing that dramatic, and your first thought to be, you did that wrong. I don't like that. Right? Somebody who's lame, can't walk, they stand up and walk. They get up out of their wheelchair, and you're like, you didn't pray that right. You should have done that yesterday. That's really their idea. You should have done it yesterday, or you should have waited till tomorrow. Right? How, how hard does your heart have to be to think that way? You know, you go back to the prayer station, and they lay hands on you, and they put it on your shoulder, and you have a dramatic healing from the Lord. How hard would my heart have to be to say, well, you did that wrong. You should have put your hand on their head, uh, just because I think that that's the way that you're supposed to do it. I don't, by the way. I'm just for instancing. Like, like how, how hard? How hard does your heart have to be to, to, to miss that? And just as a side note, we have people who are healed through prayer all the time. And so I would encourage you that if you need a touch of the Lord, whether it's physical or otherwise, you need to start asking because dad says yes. There's all kinds of dramatic things. And oftentimes we answer for him and say that he wouldn't move in our lives when he's just waiting for the opportunity. And then there's times like this with this healing where he doesn't even ask permission. And those are even more surprisingly delightful when God just does something because he feels like it. So Jesus is in that place. He's just healed this man. He's getting some pushback for it. And so then he begins to give a defense of what he's doing. And in the defense, there are four things this morning that I would say are helpful for us to be reminded of when it comes to Jesus' intention to bring new life out of dead things because that's always his intention. And so these four reminders are going to be helpful for us as we go through this series, as we talk about back to life, and as we contend for him to bring life out of the ashes and brokenness that we experience, these four reminders will be helpful for us. And so as he's facing criticism, and as he begins to respond to that criticism, this is how he begins. In John chapter 5, verse 17, it says this, in his defense... Jesus said to them, so he's dealing with their criticism. My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. And there's, there's a cheekiness to this response, right? Because their criticism is, hey, you shouldn't have done that today, right? Technically, that's working, Jesus. You're working miracles, and you shouldn't work on the Sabbath. So they're leveraging a critique here, and there's some cheekiness to his response because he basically says, Dad is always working. He doesn't take time off, and neither do I. And in one sense, he's saying, hey, I'm just getting started. And as you read the rest of the gospel narratives, I mean, he was just getting started. But the reminder for you and I is that Jesus is already at work. Okay, let, me, let me say that again. Jesus is already at work. If you have an area in your life where you're in need of a move of God, you have an area in your life where you are dealing with ashes, shadow, and brokenness, despair, whatever 
kind of that metaphor that would cover that place that you're in and you need new life. Can I tell you, Jesus is already working in that place and in that space. He's always at work. He's already at work. And he's moving in your favor. He's moving already in your favor. Yesterday, I um, had both the, the honor and the difficulty of officiating a funeral. Um, unfortunately, over the last several years, I've gotten really good at that because I've had, I've had to do a lot of them. And it was for um, particularly um, uh, just a, a kind and wonderful woman who was a part of our church family. And part of her ceremony, I got to uh, share a little bit of her thoughts from Romans chapter 8. And so because of that, it put me in that chapter, just kind of um, moving through some of these really foundational verses of hope um, and uh, encouragement. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, as Paul's writing to the church, he says, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And it's a, it's a reminder that Paul has for those who have responded to the Lord that he is active and moving in their favor in all of life's nuanced circumstance, even if they don't necessarily see it, recognize it, or even invite that to take place in that moment. That he is already at work in that area. Did you know that the burdens of your heart, the places that you finally get to a place of desperation or brokenness, and you cry out to the Lord, and you say, help me, that he has already been moving in that area before you've given him permission to move there? That he, he's already predisposed to be at work in your life. And in Psalm 121, verses 3 and 4, the psalmist encourages the people of God with a reminder that God doesn't sleep or slumber, that he doesn't like take time off when it comes to your care or your provision, when it comes to taking note of what's going on in your life or being aware of your life circumstances, that he is attentive to you intentionally and personally, and he doesn't kind of clock out for the weekend. And it's so important for us to recognize that as we go into this series and as we contend for new life in whatever area of need you would be experiencing, it is important for you to recognize God is already moving in that area and he hasn't taken any time off there as well. That he is already at work, even if you don't see it or recognize it and haven't even invited for that activity yet. He is already putting things into motion and in movement. And if you're somebody who, who likes to um, read, if you're a reader, if you like to uh, grab concepts uh, that are really simple and hold on to them and put them into application, um, I would encourage you, if this is an area where you're like, man, I, just, I, I, I don't always see or sense or feel or trust that God is moving in my favor. There's a great book called God Works the Night Shift. God Works the Night Shift. Uh, it's by uh, a late Foursquare pastor named Ron Mel, who was just a, a giant uh, in the faith. And it's a great book that just encourages you that even when you're at rest, and can I tell you, especially when you're at rest, God is still at work. 
And in fact, this is what the religious leaders missed about the Sabbath. They made it into a list of kind of do's and don'ts. And in fact, you could only walk this far on that day for it to not count as work. They had diminished it down to like a a rules and an org chart of what you could and couldn't do. But the way that Sabbath rest was designed, it it was designed for the people of God to be able to cease from all of their own effort and intention and to trust that God would continue to care and provide for them. And he always did. We sang today, you are good, you are good, so you will never, ever let me down. Like he did it, he'll continue to do it. And that rhythm of rest in your life that as Americans seem to elude us, right? Even on our days off, we just decide that to be a day of different activity oftentimes, never ceasing from moving and thinking and doing and trying to somehow, like there's a need for rest. And God works when you rest, especially when you do. I would encourage you maybe to start looking at that discipline. But the, so the first reminder for you and I is Jesus is always at work, and that's good news for us. Number two, as Jesus continues to move on and respond to them, looking at verse 19 and 20, it says this, Jesus gave them this answer. So again, he's continuing to meet their criticism and their critique that they have of what he's doing and how he's doing it. And he says, very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do or he can, yeah, he can do only what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. Now, again, I think this is kind of cheeky as well, because they're criticizing him for healing this man, right? And he's basically saying, whoa, 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 I didn't do it, dad did it, right? And just kind of bump it up, go talk to dad. I don't do anything that I don't see him do. And he gives me clear instruction. And they're offended at this as well because Jesus is saying that he is the Son of God. And so now they have two reasons to be frustrated with him. One is he seems to be violating their perspective of rest and Sabbath. And two, he is, he is speaking in very clear terms that he is the Son of God. And so now they're kind of doubly frustrated with him. But one of the reminders that you and I need to have as we go into this series about back to life, about him being able to bring life out of death or life out of darkness is this. Jesus has the authority and the ability to do so. Make no mistake about it. Jesus has the authority and the ability to do so. Any area of life right now that you are experiencing that is shouted or shrouded in death or sin or brokenness, Jesus has not just the authority, but the ability to do something dramatic about that right now today. He can bring life out of any and every one of those areas because he has been given the authority to do so. And then Jesus says this in verse, seven, or verse 20. He says, for the father loves the son and shows him all he does. So he's continuing this, hey, me and dad are doing this together. And then he says this, yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Which is incredible because he just healed a lame man and these people are not amazed. Their hearts are so hard, they're just criticizing when it happened and how it happened. And he says basically this, I have the authority, I have the ability, and I am just getting started. You think this is something, wait till you see dot, dot, dot. 
And he moves from that dot, 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 moving from this idea that he has authority and ability right to verse 21, which is really going to be our anchor verse for this series, where it says this, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. So Jesus just gets done saying, I have the authority, I have the ability, and not only that, it's going to get even bigger than you thought. I'm just getting started. You think healing a layman is something? The dead will be raised to life. And then as you continue through the gospel and narratives, you start to bump into, and we'll look in this series on three occasions where Jesus did just that. In a variety of ways, variety of demographics, variety of contexts demonstrated this. I can give life even out of death. But the reminder for us from this verse is not that he is able to give life. Okay, here's what I want you to take away from this. And if you're a note taker, I would encourage you to write this down. Jesus is pleased with you. And the reason why we're sitting on that, and why that's kind of the point that we're drawing from this verse, is because when we read a verse like this, we have some challenges. And maybe this doesn't apply to you, but this has applied at me at times, where I could read a verse like this that says, Even so, the Son gives life to whom He is pleased to give it. And my first thought can be, but He's not pleased with me. And can I tell you, that that is a common way that we respond to the hope that is ours in Scripture. We will read a verse that says, God does this, and we'll think for everyone else. God answers prayer. Well, you know, not mine. Because I don't do it right, or on the right day, or we start falling into the same traps of those with hard hearts and darkened eyes. See, it's so important, I think, for us to settle this because if the Son gives life to whom He is pleased and I say He's not pleased with me, then there's no hope of new life in any of the things that I'm experiencing in life. In fact, I will receive them and I will say it is my lot to suffer and it's by God's design and let's be honest, I deserve this. And there's a, there's a merit of truth to that. That's why we fall into it. Because we know that the wages of sin is death. We know that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know, we, we know that we're guilty. We don't need our spouse or our kids to even remind us of it. We know. And it's true. But in Christ, all of that has been reversed. When you receive salvation, all of that has been reversed. You receive new life, and He is pleased with you. And even prior to your surrender to Him, God is already pleased with you. Now, let's be honest. He is not always pleased with the activity of your life, pre- or post-salvation. He's not always pleased with the conditions of our life that may be of our own making and the consequences of our own decisions or maybe the, the uh, effect 
of the will and decisions of others. We could be collateral damage and find ourselves entrapped in really difficult situations in life. All of those things are true. And he could look at some of the activity in my life and say, hey, Ben, I'm not pleased with that, but still be pleased with me. And he can look at some of the conditions that my life has fallen into and say, hey, that's not my design for you, but he can still be pleased with me. The challenge for us is we typically take our activity and the conditions of our life and we wrap it up in our valuation of ourselves and our identity and we get trapped there. But God loved you before you loved him. In fact, as we get back to John and his primary metaphors of life and death and light and dark, his other primary thematic focus is love. Love, 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 love. In fact, if you go read John, 1 John, it's just a love letter about how God loves you and about how we respond to Him in love and about how that love impacts the way that we love one another. And He goes out of His way to say we love because He first loved us. Before you even get to this chapter, chapter 5, where we're unpacking all of this, you get John chapter 3. Jesus' conversation recorded with Nicodemus and the focus of not just life and eternal life, but the love that motivated God to put that on offer to begin with. And you get to John 3.16, for God so loved the world, right, that he's moved and motivated by his deep pleasure in you for the simple fact that he created you. And that he wants to extend his love to you and recover you, redeem you, rescue you from your brokenness restore you, reconcile you to himself. He's motivated by, by that love. He is, he's pleased with you. He's pleased with you. As we go into this series, Back to Life, Jesus is already working in the areas that you need resurrected life. He's got the authority and he's got the ability to do something about each and every one of those circumstances. And he is already pleased with you. He is already motivated by a deep and abiding love for you. In fact, it's demonstrated by the cross. The death and resurrection of Jesus demonstrates that. Paul actually says in his letter that when we were still dead in our sin, that God demonstrated his love for us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's at work. He's got the authority and the ability. He's already pleased with you. And then it moves us to John chapter 5, verses 24 to 26, as Jesus continues this defense, and he says this, Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged but has crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. And that's something that ends up being dramatically demonstrated in a variety of ways. In the resurrection narratives, we're going to see Jesus speak, and literally dead people come back to literal physical life. 
But you're also, if you read the gospel, is going to see when Jesus speaks the very living word of God and people are transformed from the inside out, where new life is restored in them, in their relationships and in their community, in their relationship with God, in their valuation of, of who they are, that across the board, when Jesus speaks, life is the result. And in John chapter 8, if you started reading chapter 5 this week and you're like, it's a page turner, couldn't put it down, right? You would get to John chapter 8 where Jesus says, I only speak what I hear the Father say. Jesus is already at work. He's got the authority and the ability to bring new life out of death. He is already pleased with you. And when Jesus speaks... Life is the result. Church family, if you would stand, worship team, if you would come forward, I want to guide us in a few ways to respond this morning as we close. As you guys are standing and getting set and as the worship team's coming forward, I do want to give you just kind of one sidebar of encouragement. As we get to this last point that when Jesus speaks, life is the result you know, you may be somebody who would raise your hand and say, but, but pastor, how do I know if he's speaking to me? Like, how do I discern his voice? How, how do I recognize that? You know, Jesus speaks of himself as the good shepherd and says that his sheep hear his voice, that they won't listen to the voice of another. That there's the discipline and the opportunity for each one of us to be able to discern when the Lord is speaking to us and to respond to that life-giving voice. And just some practical things, if you're, if you're developing that or if you're interested in kind of taking some steps for it, there's just a few things that I would say would be kind of your next steps today if you wanted to begin that journey. One is, is you need to start reading your Bible and not for, uh, uh, you know, taking a test or a discipline's sake, but you'll begin to discern the voice of the Lord when you know the kind of things that He says. You know, if I get on the phone with one of my brothers and they're not really sure who it is, but they hear me use the word rad, they know it's Ben. None of the other brothers use that word because they're just not as rad as I am is how I figure that out. Like just like when you answer the phone or when you're in a conversation with somebody and you know the nuance and the cadence, the inflection and the vocabulary that they use, if you'll spend time in the Word of God, you'll begin to better discern when he's speaking to you. Another thing that would be helpful would be to spend some time in reflection and in silence in your time of prayer. Most of us, our prayer life, once we get there, is we're desperately crying out for help or we're complaining a lot. Not you, but that nine o'clock service, full of them, right? At different times in church history, there's been a resurgence in the people of God to include reflection and silence in their time of prayer. It's in that space that you'll hear, like the prophet did in the Old Testament, the still, small whisper or the still, small voice of God. You'll discern that. In just kind of some practical senses, square two goes through some of these types of disciplines and would be really helpful in you growing in that way, the class, hearing from God, same thing. There's some practical steps that you can take. 
But it starts with a posture of being willing to receive. And that's what I want to bring us back to. Jesus offers you and I new life. In our physical bodies, he brings new life. In our weary hearts, he offers new life. In our troubled minds, he offers new life. His touch brings new life. And I would ask that you would just close your eyes for a moment and entertain these questions. Where, where are you in need of new life? need to receive salvation today, you've never said yes to Jesus. Maybe there's an area of your life that you've held tight to and you have yet to surrender. Maybe there's a promise in God's word that you've held for everybody but yourself because he would never do that for you because somehow he's displeased with you. Maybe you need to surrender that thought and have new life there today. Jesus is already moving in your area of need. He's already pleased with you and motivated by his compassion. He's already speaking his word of truth and life and affirmation over you. What's left is the response. You may have not even been looking for the Lord to move in your life today, but he's ready to move. How would you respond if he said, get up and walk? Would you just simply stand or would you have to have an argumentative conversation? Could you just respond in faith to what he would motivate you to do today? Lord, we come to you and as an act of faith, Lord, as an act of surrender, we put our hands out in front of you as if we were holding our area of need. As if we were holding our box that should be full of noise and life but is still and has the air of death. And Lord, as we present ourselves to you, we ask that you would take us in your hands. Lord, that you would begin to tend and care for us, that you would begin to massage the warmth of your love back into us, Lord, that we would begin to receive, respond to, and walk in full confidence the new life that is ours in Christ. And frame this expectation for us as we go into this series. Jesus, if you can speak and a dead body come back to the life, you can bring new life into my areas of need as well. Give us that certainty, that confidence, that bold faith. And give us soft hearts, Lord, to receive from you and to respond in obedience in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Three action steps for you this week. They're going to all come with some reminders and some ways to respond to that. You can snap a picture with your smartphone or tablet, or you can pick this up online later on this week. But Jesus is already working, so offer him your area of need. Jesus is already pleased with you, so simply receive his love and affirmation. And Jesus is already speaking. Begin to listen to his voice.